Hey, murder lovers. My name's Mackenzie. This is Patina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Today, the day you guys are hearing this, is September 13th. Yes. But we had the anniversary of 9-11 this weekend. 20 years. 20 years. That's Wild. Yes. That is wild. Yes. So for those of you who are international listeners, I'm sure most are familiar with the story. But September 11th of 2001, the World Trade Centers were attacked in New York City and subsequently fell. So, And also the Pentagon and a different plane. Four planes total. A pa- plane that was headed for Washington, D.C. Uh, crashed in Pennsylvania. Right. Yes. So this is the 20th anniversary, so I am going to be telling a 9-11 story today. That's exciting. Um, But I'm curious, because one of the things I always, I find fascinating is knowing where people were on 9-11. So where do you remember? I'm sure you remember. Absolutely Where were you? So first and foremost, I was in eighth grade. I was in eighth grade. And so that ages me, but we, um, so I was the first school bus that got into school. I was the first route that got into the school. And for eighth grade, I had both my first hour, my homeroom as woodshop. I Mm -hmm. love this teacher. I, I spent so much time with him because I had two hours in a row with him. Right. So I go into my classroom and so apparently The first plane had hit the tower, the North Tower, on our way to school, right? We were, Mm -hmm. there's no cell phones at this time. We had no idea. So when I walk into the school, into the classroom, my teacher is just staring at the TV. And mind you, (laughs) so you didn't know yet what it was. No, we did not know yet. And um, just to paint the picture, you know, back in, middle school in Arizona, we had the big like box TVs on these <laughs> brackets mm-hmm. up on the corners of the t- of the classroom. And he was just staring at the TV, which is very unlike him. You know, usually when I walked in, he was cleaning up, getting the stuff ready for the class that day, et cetera, getting all the wood ready. And he's sitting there sitting, which is odd for him sitting mm-hmm. down watching the TV. And then I go and all I see is this fire. And then I slowly start hearing, you know, kind of what's happening. I'm I'm not comprehending what's happening yet, and it was oh this is giving me chills. I know I like <sighs> I have goosebumps on my arms. So this guy is an older guy. He was an older teacher. He was a veteran. He was a Vietnam veteran, and he just says, "We are going into war." That's we we are under attack. We're going to war, and for me as a kid, I was like. What? <laughs> right, because you're what thinking like on? world on our home soil type thing. Right. Yeah. And so for for me, um, I did not quite understand that, but I was feeding off his emotions. Yeah. Because he was very emotional. And then as it has always been, it has always been very hard to see a man cry. Oh, yeah. And to see this older man who I saw very, I thought of very fondly, to see him crying um, because he said, <laughs> he also said, what the hell did we fight for if this is happening? And this is even before the second tower was hit. Yeah. I didn't know you were going to ask me this today. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I didn't think you'd have such a story. Uh, so then... 
as we sat there and it was just me and this other kid and because we were school hadn't even started homeroom hadn't even started um and we saw the second tower get hit yeah and that's when you know other kids started rolling in again we were talking over and over like catching them up on what's happening yeah and then um, homeroom started. We did nothing but stare at the TV that day. Um, the school decided that whatever your homeroom was, you stayed in that class all day long until either school was over and you got bused home or your parents came and got you. So all we did that day was stay in our homeroom. And I was in Arizona, if I failed to mention that. And for Arizona, at least the area that we were in, there were two very uh, close, what we thought were targets or possible mm-hmm. targets, because at this point it was we had no idea chaos, what was going on. Right? Yeah. So we had very closely the Palo Verde nuclear power plant, and we're like, "Oh shit! If that's next, we're in trouble. We're in trouble." And for me as a kid, it's even bringing up these feelings now that. Um, that sense of doom and like mm-hmm. what is happening and like the idea of death comes into your mind like what happens if a nuclear power plant gets hit and like mm-hmm. does everything just get obliterated you know what happens so um, I, I don't remember exactly what day of the week it was but I don't think we went to school for the next two or three days and then um we, our country was in utter chaos. Yeah. Right. Uh, whether it was just planes not going anywhere, transportation was at a complete halt, etc. Yeah. All the planes were grounded it that day. Also, the you know these other things happened. Ripple effects of what hap- what was happening, is that um, there was a lot of racism happening right, towards people of certain cultures and and whatever. And I lived in an apartment complex that four days after, um, the FBI came knocking on my upstairs neighbor's house and dragged the entire family out just because they fit a certain criteria. Um, And they were all cleared and nothing, they had obviously no affiliation, but just like, uh, just to see that happening in front of us yeah um that was pretty wild too but yeah it was um no I I vividly remember exactly where I was on that day how about you um (laughs) well so the first tower was hit at what time was it at 846 846 if I remember right yeah so 846 Eastern time. Um Mm -hmm. I was in Oregon so it was 546 6 7 8 yeah um, 5.46 in the morning. So my mom had just gotten up because she's a teacher. She'd just gotten up and was getting ready to go to school. And no one woke me up that morning to go to school. So I remember getting up and being kind of confused that nobody had come in to wake me up. Going into my mom's room, my mom was standing in her room ironing her clothes just sobbing. Mm-hmm. And I remember just tears coming down her face. And I didn't know why. And so I'm, like, looking at the TV or whatever, and she's kind of, like, racing around. So she's back and forth between her room ironing clothes and then downstairs talking to my dad. 
and then just like crying this whole time. And I'm like, what is going on? And I remember seeing the news and I remember seeing the towers, but and like the smoke coming off of them, but it's not really registering. So she kind of explained to me what was going on. And by this time, I think it was like about 630 in the morning that I had actually woken yeah. up. The second tower was hit at 9 a.m. So, yeah. So at this point, both towers had been hit. My mom actually watched the second plane on TV fly into the towers. And she called my grandpa and was like, do you know what's happening? And my grandpa was like, no. I was like, turn on a TV, turn on the radio, anything today? And he's like, no. Oh, man. Like, no idea. He had just been, like, getting ready. He was a pastor, so he was getting ready for his day, heading up to the church and stuff. And so my mom was like, you need to turn on the news. And so my mom drove to work that morning with the radio, knowing or listening to everything that's happened. She told my dad, she said, if this starts moving west, you need to go pick up those kids and get them out of school. Because I still hadn't been dropped off for school yet. So I got dropped off late. I was in fifth grade. (laughs) Gives you a little age gap there. Um, I was in fifth grade and uh, I came into school late. And I remember my teacher was standing at the front of the class. Actually, she was sitting down on like a desk or something. And I came in late and she was like, you've probably seen more than anybody else has anything happened. And everything had happened at this point. And so I don't actually remember her having a TV on that day in the classroom, but we were, you know, 11 years old. So that 10, 11 years old, so that kind of makes sense age wise or whatever. But my mom was teaching the exact same grade and you best believe she had a TV on in that classroom. So, um... Yeah, I I remember my mom saying, go get those kids if it heads west. Because, th- like you said, right. there was no... At that point, we didn't realize how things were being targeted. We just knew something was happening, and we didn't know when it was going to end. Right. So, it was... Yeah, it's one of those things that I just... I vividly remember walking into my mom's bedroom that morning and seeing her standing there just ironing crying. and crying. Yeah. You know... I've thought about this a couple of times, and to me, I, it's hard to wrap my mind around it, but I have a brother who, we have a 10-year gap. Yeah. So, he was born, you he know. He doesn't even remember. He doesn't even remember. He was only three years old at the time. Yeah. So, for him to grow up in, it's a, a, a different world because he didn't know the world before it. Yeah. It's just mind-blowing to me. He never knew having to go through TSA. No. No, I remember yeah. like being a kid and being able to go right up to the, to the gate, gate. Yes. And you could watch the plane take yes. off. Yes. Karen, I just talking about that yesterday. We were like, man, it really changed the world. Like, even if you don't know it, it changed so many things. You know, just down... I mean, the most simple thing that it changes is security at the airports, obviously, for yeah. obvious reasons. But, yeah, I remember as a, as a little kid... You know, when family flew in or anything, you would go right up to the gate and wait for them. They're excited to see them mm-hmm. come right off the plane. So it was this whole different experience. And it's things that, you know, kids nowadays will not be able to experience, which is, you know, uh, weird to say like, oh, that's what we're missing out on. But it's just yeah. it, it um, it's just experiences that it changed people, you know, yeah. forever. And it's my mom's co-worker and really good teacher or uh, like teacher friend like they taught mm-hmm. together um they were taught at the same school and they were also very good friends outside of being co-workers um she was in new york and Oof. she took the very last tour of the world trade centers the night before oh the last group man. out her husband had to sedate her to get her back on a plane to get her home 
because she was so rattled by the whole thing. Oh, I bet. So, um, yeah, so. That's crazy. Anyway, so in honor of September 11th, the story I am going to tell you today is about Sneha and Philip, who disappeared around September 11th, and they've never actually been able to pinpoint how so oh okay sneha was born in the indian state of kerala i think is how it's pronounced so it's in india on october 7th of 1969 a libra sure i only know one sign and it's what's around mine Uh, she moved to new york with her parents when she was still a kid and then she ended up going to john hopkins Very smart. Yeah. She got her bachelor's degree from John Hopkins, and then she went to medical school at the Chicago School of Medicine in 1995. And it was there that she met a man named Ron Lieberman. They went to school together, began dating. He was also um, a med student. He had kind of an interest in music. She had an interest in painting, and so they kind of bonded over their more creative interests while also being in med school and everything. Being a power couple. Yeah, that was, I think that was the plan. And he was actually a year behind her in school, and she really wanted to graduate with him. So rather than completing her program on time, she actually took a year off. What? And went and traveled through Italy for a year. Oh, that's smart. Then came back to school, and they graduated together. Oh, that's sweet. They graduated together, and then they moved to New York City for their respective internships. Hmm. Ron went to Jacoby Medical Center, and that was in the Bronx. And then Sneha went to Cabrini Medical Center. Um, That was in the East Village. And then they were married in May of 2000. So they combined elements of both of their, like, respective religions. He was Jewish, if you couldn't tell by the name Lieberman. (laughs) Um, He was Jewish. She was Indian Christian. And so they combined elements of that uh, in the ceremony. And then as a wedding gift, Ron gave her what's called a minu. It's M-I-N-N-U. It's a traditional Malayali Christian wedding pendant. It's shaped like a gold teardrop, and then it has a diamond set in the middle. It's like a very specific piece of jewelry, which is important to remember. Hopefully I remember to tell you why it's important to remember. Sure. (laughs) I'll ask. So they, that's what he gave her as a gift. She wore it every day. They moved to Battery Park. And that was shortly after the wedding. So that's still in New York. They moved to Battery Park. And then on September 10th of 2001, Snail was off work. She was off work for like a three-day stint. Oh, okay. You know, sure. Some days on, yeah. This is the day before the attacks on the World Trade Centers. And so Ron said she had been planning to spend the day cleaning the apartment because they had a cousin that was going to be coming over for dinner in two days, so she was like, I'm going to get things kind of, like, put together or whatever. She had a couple errands to run. She also talked to her mom that day, but they talked through Instant Messenger. Hello, oh, AOL, AIM. <laughs> wow. And so they had talked through AIM for, like, two hours from, like, 2 to 4 p.m., and she actually told her mom that she was planning on going to visit the Windows of the World restaurant, and that was located in the North Tower on the top floor Uh of the World Trade Centers. And she was going to visit there because her friend was going to get married the following year, and that was one of the venues that they were looking at. Oh, okay. She was planning on going over there, kind of scouting it out. So at 4 p.m., she signed off from talking to her mom, and then she went to drop off some clothes at the dry cleaners, 
And then she went over to the Century 21 department stores that were popular during that time along the East Coast. And she bought lingerie, a dress, pantyhose, and bed sheets. Okay. And then she also bought three pairs of shoes at a nearby shop. So security footage that was taken from the Century 21 store and her credit card receipts from her American Express do confirm this, that she was at the store at that time, and she did buy those things. That so, it was her. Yes. Okay. All accounted for. These are the last records of her existence. Hmm. So when Ron got home that night from work, because he was still working, she wasn't home. He said that it wasn't uncommon for her to stay out all night. I'll explain. Okay. But it wasn't uncommon for her to stay out all night, and he made, like, kind of a mental note to remind her to be like, hey, if you're going to be gone all night, you need to at least call or whatever. So like he, he planned on telling her that when she yeah. got back? Like, yeah. hey, don't do this again. Yeah. Like, okay. if you're going to be out, like, at least call me Let so me I'm know. not worried. Gotcha. She didn't come home that night, and so he went to bed because he had to work early in the next morning. And so he got up at about 6.30 in the morning and went to work or got up at 6.30 a.m. on September 11th, got ready for work, went to work. Mm -hmm. Snea's still not home. And he's like, not uncommon for her. (laughs) And so... That's weird. It is weird, but I'll explain. There was a phone call that was registered to his cell phone at about 4 in the morning, and he says he doesn't remember who the phone call was from, and that he may have woken up briefly to check his voicemail, but he doesn't remember who the voicemail was from or anything because it woke him up out of a sleep. Sure. But it's interesting that, you know, she hasn't been seen since the day before. A phone call comes in. We're not really sure who it's from. So he gets up. He gets ready for work. He goes to work. And after he's already left for work is obviously when the first plane hits. He's right. at work when the first plane hits. And so he is working during this time at a hospital. Right. When the World Trade Center hits. You're not going anywhere. No. But when he does get off of his shift that night, he does end up returning home. And he uses his medical credentials to get past the security barriers that would have prevented him from getting into his apartments. Because his apartment was nearby the crash site. Oh, okay. And so when he goes into his apartment, he finds the window is opened and the apartment is covered in dust from the of crash. Of course, yeah. The only track marks across the parking the apartment in the dust are from the couple's kittens. So you can see the cats have run across the dust, but there's no sign that a human has been in there. You said the couple's kids? Kittens. Oh, kittens. They're cats. Gotcha. Baby cats. Yeah, baby kitties. I thought you said kids. I was like, yeah, I didn't hear any kids. No, okay. kittens. Gotcha. So they run across the dust, but still no sign no, of no Snea. No footsteps. Yeah. Okay. And so he immediately, like, panics, obviously. And he's been trying to get a hold of her all day long. Hasn't been able to get a hold of her. She's not been to the apartment or anything like that. So at that point is when he files a missing persons report. Oh, man. He pulls the credit card and does see, like, the charges on the card, so he confirms that she did, in fact, shop at that store. He spent two weeks himself just going through the CCT footage to try and find any shot of her on the CCT footage. And then they posted, him and her family posted flyers all over the Century 21 stores once they figured out that she had indeed been shopping there. And a clerk came forward and said that she actually remembers seeing Snea and said that she remembered it. Because that was, like, a frequent customer of hers. Like, she was familiar with her face. Sure. And said that she had been shopping with somebody else. Oh. A woman. Oh, okay. Oh. Maybe the friend that she was going to go scout the restaurant with? 
But it was also a woman of some type of Indian descent because the woman, the clerk said, oh, is that your sister? And she was like, no, it's just a friend of mine. But when they pulled the CCT footage, she appeared to be shopping by herself. Weird. There's also footage of people leaving the store. And because it's 2001, it's very grainy. But it does look like she could possibly be leaving the store with a second person. But it's hard to know. Gotcha. So... The clerk insists that she was with a second woman. The CCTV footage in the actual department store itself shows she's by herself, but then walking out, it's possible that maybe she was walking next to another person, but it can't really make out who it is. Or if it's even really her exiting the store as much as it is somebody that looks like her and is wearing something similar. Right. So the security footage just captures the possibility, but you can't see, like, faces and whatnot. Exactly. It's pretty blurry. Okay. Nice and pixelated and grainy. So, obviously, the police are very overwhelmed by what's happening at this point. It could not have been worse timing for them to be following up on a missing persons report. So, Ron actually ends up hiring his own private investigator to look into it. And so, the private investigator was the one that found that a phone call had been made to the couple's, or made from the couple's apartment on the morning of 9-11 to Ron's cell phone after Ron left for work. Okay. But no voicemail was left. And I'm not exactly sure of the timestamp, but it was sometime after Ron After work. Yeah. After work, before, we don't know, before or after the attacks? No, we don't okay. know that. They also found security footage from the lobby of the apartment. And oh. it shows at 8.43, a woman enters the building, waits for a couple minutes near the elevator, and then walks back out. Okay. Now, the sunlight is glaring right through the window, so it's making it, like, a super contrasting image, so you can't really tell if it's her, but they are shaped similarly, they're built similarly. She's a very petite woman. She's, like, 5'1", 115 pounds. Oh, super small. Yeah. And looks like she could be wearing something similar to the night, or the day before she disappeared. She was, like, in black pants and a brown top. But she has no shopping bags with her. And remember, she'd been shopping, so Mm -hmm. it was like, is that her? And she waits near the elevators, but then walks back out. But the first plane hit at 8.46, which is three minutes after she walks in the building. So they think there's a possibility that it was her. She heard the mm-hmm. boom or the crash and walked back outside to see what was going Instinctually, on. Instinctually. Yeah. As a medical person, she's like, well, what can I do to help? Exactly. Okay. Ron doesn't think that that's actually her. He is, like, convinced it's not her. But a New York Police Department investigator actually reviews the footage himself later on and does agree with the private investigator that it does look like it's possible that it is her. But nothing's definitive in that aspect. The PI continues to kind of investigate, and he does think that maybe it's possible that she used the attacks to intentionally disappear. So he starts, like, going through all of her stuff. They look through her computer and do, like, a... Forensic analysis of it. They don't find anything that really supports that. Nothing as far as, like, her trying to escape or anything related to that aspect. She had also left behind her glasses, her passport, her driver's license, all of her credit cards except for the American Express she'd used that day. So that also didn't really seem realistic for somebody Mm -hmm. that was trying to run... That was his initial thought. Like, he was like, oh, maybe that's a possibility. But everything he was running into didn't really support that from his end. Mm -hmm. Now, remember at this time, hundreds, if not thousands of people have been reported missing on 9-11. 
And her case was the only one really, well, I shouldn't say the only one. It was like one of three that couldn't definitively be connected to the attacks. Hmm. Ron and the private investigator he hired believe after looking through everything that Snea must have witnessed the attacks happening. And mm-hmm. because of her medical training, yeah. had rushed to try and help and died in the towers or whatever trying to right. help. Right. If... If it truly was her that walked into the building at 843, the planes would have hit at 846. Assuming she had run to help, the second plane hit at 9.03 a.m. Mm-hmm. And then the Pentagon is hit at 9.37 a.m. And then the South Tower, which is the second one that was hit, collapses first. And that happens at 9.59 a.m. At 10.07, the flight that is going to the White House crashes in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. after the after all those on board take down the hijackers. hijackers. Mm-hmm. And then at 10.28, the North Tower collapses. So there is quite a bit of time in there that she really could... She could have gone, if that indeed was her, at 8.43, at 8.46, seeing the crash happen, get over there and try and help. There is quite a bit of time before those towers actually come down. Right. Especially the second tower. So that's their theory. Now, the family continues to canvas with flyers and trying to get, like, some help with this, but they're never really able to come up with anything or prove definitively that she was there, but that is their firm belief. Right. And so... Ron does end up filing in 2003 to be a recipient of the Victims Fund that's set up. It's a federal Um, fund. Sure. And it's around this same time that the NYPD starts to actually investigate her disappearance. Because in order for you to claim that, you actually have to be listed as an official victim. Oh. And there's nothing that actually, like, definitively links her to the attacks. So she isn't. An official victim of 9-11. So the NYPD begins investigating and they're not convinced that she died in the attacks. Really? So earlier that same year, Cabrini Medical Center had declined to renew her contract. So she had an internship contract with them. um, And this effectively terminated her employment with them. Sure. And they cited the reason for this was repeated tardiness and alcohol-related issues. Uh Uh-oh. So she was basically fired. And then after she was told that her contract wasn't going to be renewed, she handled this by going out and getting drunk with some of her coworkers. <sighs> and she said it was that night when she was at the bar with some of her coworkers that a fellow intern groped her. Like okay. sexually assaulted, assaulted her. her. Yeah. Um, and so she filed a police report. The prosecutor picked up who picked up the police report for that did an investigation and actually dropped the charges against the intern for the groping and pressed charges against her for falsely filing a a police report. What? I'm not sure what the evidence was based on that, um, but he basically offered to drop the charges against her if she recanted the accusation. She said no. (laughs) So she ended up spending the night in jail for it. And... Wow, that's a turn of events. Yeah. So these are all things that she was kind of dealing with right around this time. So she's been fired for her job. She's, you know, got a substance abuse issue. She's, it's obviously impacting her professional life and everything. And then this false police report thing comes up. Now, again, I don't know if what she actually accused him of was true or not. But she then began frequenting 
gay and lesbian bars located in the downtown New York area. Okay. Also went to, like, several of these bars that kind of had a rough reputation. Okay. Um, so she went to, like, you know, some that are, you know, normal bars or whatever. But also, mm. like, some of the hole in the walls where it's like... Yeah. Are we like going to make it out? can happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are we going to get out of here alive? <laughs> We've got a few bars like that just in general in Portland. Yeah. <laughs> so she began to kind of go to these, these bars that were, you know, rough and rowdy, kind of notorious for their fighting and stuff like that. It was discovered that she would often go specifically to the gay and lesbian bars and the lesbian bars she was going to pick up women. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she would go there, pick up women, and the police were like, she's going home with these women. Oh. And they're they're doing the thing. Okay. And... Also found they also included in their report that her brother had walked in on her and his girlfriend. Oh shit! Getting down and dirty. Damn. And so that's crazy. The <laughs> the brother denied this, and he was like, "Absolutely not. I never even talked to that detective. That's not true." But the brother isn't reputable either because when his sister disappeared, he made a false claim to reporters that he had actually spoken to her during the attacks. And they'd found out that this wasn't true and he'd only said that to get attention to hopefully further the investigation. So lie, people. It's hard to know who to believe in this situation because he's not exactly mm, reputable. Yeah. And he was like, this never happened. And the prosecutors were like, this definitely, or not the prosecutors, but the investigators were like, this definitely happened. And so combined with that instance with the brother and his, at the time, girlfriend, who we ended up marrying, mm. um, <laughs> and then her frequenting these bars um, and picking up women, it was like, is she leading a double life? Yeah, that raises some eyebrows for yeah. sure. Now, the husband, Ron, said that he knew that she was going to these bars. He doesn't know why she was in the rough and rowdy ones, like what exactly it was about these like seedier locations that she was drawn to, but he said that she frequented the gay and lesbian bars because she felt like it would reduce her chances of something happening similar to what had happened with the intern that groped her. Uh, that was her, that was at least what Ron said her strategy was that she was trying to reduce those types of encounters. Along the time of the investigation, they, they had discovered she did eventually get another internship at St. Uh, St. Vincent Medical Center. And that was located in Staten Island. But when 9-11 happened, she had already been suspended from this internship for missing a meeting with a substance abuse counselor. Oh, my goodness. So things were already not racking up there well. Yeah. Um, and the family, her family claimed that she was not fired from her old job due to any alcohol abuse related instances or anything like that. They said that she was fired as retaliation because she was a whistleblower for sexual, um, sexual, sexual, or sexual discrimination, discrimination of gender. And then also for, um, that's, oh, racism, racism was the other one. Okay. But the medical center told a reporter that there were no, there was no evidence that she had ever filed any formal uh, complaints related to this. 
that's, it's possible that that's what she told her family she was terminated right, for. That's what I'm but thinking. that's not what actually she was terminated for. Yeah, of course she was saving face and she didn't want to tell her family, especially if she had a substance abuse problem and didn't want to confront it yet or wasn't ready to. She probably didn't tell her family that's what happened. Right. Okay. Now, a lot of the um, sites that I was looking at, when they talk about her morning on September 10th, it always starts with her talking to her mom. They're like, she talked to her mom and then she went to the dry cleaner and blah, blah, blah. But that's not actually how she started her day on September 10th. Isn't that September 10th? 10th? Okay. Yeah. So how she actually started her day on September 10th was in court for arraignment on the charges of filing a false police report. Oh. And she pled not guilty. And then the police at the courthouse observed her and Ron getting in a very loud fight in the middle of the courthouse. And then her storming off and said that the fight was related to her alcohol abuse and her late night outs. So in the courthouse they yeah. had this argument? Yeah. Oh, it's pretty public. Yeah. And Yeah. So she stormed off and left him alone and he went home and went to work or whatever. But he says that this fight never happened. He was like, "No, we didn't get into a fight." And uh, the police were like, "What? There's didn't... footage?" Yeah. Okay. So there's not I mean, he's the only one that disputes that this fight actually took place. He's like, no, no, that didn't happen. But the thing is, is even if there's footage, like, you can't hear. Sure. So. We're just (laughs) very animated talking about where we're getting lunch. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I was telling her to park the car closer. (laughs) The family and Ron Lieberman ended up disputing much of the NYPD investigation down to her not being fired for any alcohol-related issues, saying that she was, you know, fired for retaliation. Uh, Ron also said that she was going to these gay and lesbian bars and picking up these women, but that she was picking them up as, like, they were just friends. And so he was like... Oh, Ron. He was like, oh, yeah, they would go and they would listen to music together and they would paint and stuff. And then they would just like fall asleep and then she would just come home the next day. Run. She was sleeping with these women, not actually sleeping with these women. They were just like napping. It's fine. Yeah. Just getting cuddle buddies for the night. Oh, sweet, Ron. Yes, Ron. That's what all women do at gay bars. Yeah. (laughs) Our, yes. It's like being like, no, they just had a pillow fight. Nothing happened. Oh my gosh. And so he even like, he went as far as being like, no, one time she came home and she was covered in paint. And so I know that she had been over, she had picked up an artist. Like she like had gone to this bar and her and this like painter Mm. artist had hit it off as friends. And then she came home and she was just covered head to toe in paint. And so I knew that they'd been up painting all night. And I was like, they were painting each other. Yeah. (laughs) They're maybe painting a canvas, but not with paintbrushes, if you will. He seems to live a very <laughs> distorted, yeah, reality idea of mm-hmm. what exactly was going on there. Um, but this is the reason why her not showing up at home that night wasn't that out of the ordinary for him. For him, yeah, he didn't think twice about it because this was kind of her her new jam. If He's you will. like, oh, she's just out listening to music with new girlfriends. <laughs> she's out painting, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, with a friend that she met at a lesbian bar at three in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where yeah. you make friends. That's where I make friends. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Ron also said that she only started heavily drinking because she was fired. That she wasn't fired for heavily drinking. That she was heavily drinking because she was fired. Oh, And 
that she was depressed from being fired and that she had said that she was planning on stopping once, like, her life kind of got back to normal. And he fully believed that that's what she was planning on doing. And the family is adamant that the NYPD fabricated the investigation to make up for their lack of effort in the case earlier on. Which uh, I'm just like, mm, yeah. I, I don't buy that because my feeling is, is like, <laughs> it would be much easier for them to be like, this is a 9-11 related instance. Right. Not like to create like a whole fake storyline around it. Like that's so much more complicated than being like, she probably died in 9-11. Right. They're like, all right, so here's what happened. Because we didn't get on this earlier, we're right. going to make up this whole second life. No. <laughs> it doesn't quite add up. You're right. It's harder to do a yeah. cover-up than it is to just be like, chalk it up to that. Yeah. And I like I don't think they necessarily need to make up for a lack of effort mm-hmm. when you're investigating thousands of disappearances related to 9-11. Right. Um, but that's just my opinion. So he filed a court petition to declare his wife a victim of 9-11. Now, the reason for this is because there was a fund that had been set up. It was a federal fund for the 9-11 victims. And he needed her to be declared legally dead in order for him to qualify for any type of compensation through that fund. And so in New York City, or I'm sorry, in New York, there is a law that requires clear and convincing evidence of lethal peril in order mm-hmm. for somebody to be declared dead without a body. And this okay. includes the victims of 9-11. Like, they do need to have something that says they were either in the towers, near the towers, a job that, like... Would have put them there close yeah, enough. like, firefighter, right. those something. kind of things. Yeah. yeah. By the time all of this, like, goes through, it's been several years. Like, there's, you know... There's basically, like, a whole legal process that goes into this. Right. You have to do a hearing and everything. So on you can't June, just sign yourself up and be right. like... You can't be like... So-and-so was there. On June 29th of 2006, Judge Renee Roth ruled that there was no clear evidence that she was at or near the attacks on 9-11. There was only the speculation of the family. Hmm. So she was declared legally dead, but her death date was listed as September 10th of 2004. Whoa. Which was three years later than the last day she was seen. Yeah, so this is according to state law. There has to be so many years that pass. The family appealed this decision, and on January 31st of 2008, a five-judge panel reversed the decision, and they said that the simplest explanation was the most likely, which is exactly what I was saying with, like, the the investigation or whatever. Like, it would be much simpler for them to be like, 9-11. The judges agreed. They were like, this is a much simpler explanation. So they reversed the decision. They cited that the... Law asked for the conclusion of the highest probability. And so the highest Mm. probable explanation was that she had died in September 11th attacks. So she was officially declared the 2,751st victim of 9-11. There is only one other victim who has not been declared related to the incident, and that is Fernando Molina. He is a Mexican immigrant. He hasn't been seen or heard from since September 8th. He last told his mom that he was starting a new job at a pizzeria near the towers. And he, the parents do believe that he died in the World Trade Center attacks, but they've never been able to prove it. To link it. it. So he has not actually been listed as a victim of 9-11. By the time everything was closed and said and done, it was too late for Ron to receive any money from the victim's fund. Mm. That victim's fund actually stopped paying things out in 2003, which I think is a shame because 
there's a lot of people that died yeah. well after the attacks from what oh, yeah. they experienced. I'm pretty sure there's a fund set up for first responders who suffered, I believe, lung damage from Probably. yeah. The- um, the family buried an urn of ashes from ground zero at a cemetery near their house, and no physical remains have been found for over a thousand victims of the attack. The reason yeah. the necklace is so important is because the family keeps waiting for the necklace to turn up. Because they still, you know, they have all this stuff from the site that they're going yeah. through, and they've been uh, attaching, like, they said, like, there are bone fragments that mm-hmm. are coming through the size of Tic Tacs. That obviously wow. are, like, impossible to link to people. Yeah. And so they try and identify, like, shoes and clothing and jewelry that survived it to see if they can actually, like, pinpoint anything. So they're always on the lookout for that pendant that she yeah. got from her wedding ceremony. Well, I mean, that would, you know, give them some closure if that's the case. Definitely. Ron ended up remarrying in 2010, and he did have the blessing of his late wife's family. Um, he remained really close with his in-laws. And then Sneo's family actually established a memorial fund in her name. The first pays for medical treatment of impoverished patients at a clinic in Kerala, which is where she was born. And then the Marthama Doctors Association also started a fund in her name. This is a mission group that um, does, like, humanitarian efforts. She has never been found or accounted for, and she was 31 at the time of the attacks. I actually, like, the reason I started looking into this is because my, the director at my job had told me about this website uh, called Post Secrets. I don't know if you ever looked at them. I have all the books. You do? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So (laughs) I follow them on everything. Um, And I look at the, I look at the new Post Secrets all the time. Oh, yeah. I find them very interesting. For those of you who don't know, (laughs) Post Secrets is the largest ad-free website on the internet. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's basically this collection of secrets that are sent in anonymously to this guy that actually runs the website. And they basically postmark their secrets. So Mm -hmm. they send in an an anonymous message that has a secret affiliated with it. It's not signed or anything like that. So it can't be tied to anything. And it's anything. And I remember a couple years ago seeing a post secret that came out. And it was a drawing of the World Trade Centers. And there's smoke all around them. And on the top of the card, it said, everyone who knew me before 9-11 believes I'm dead. Ooh. And it, like, every time, it still gives me, like, body chills. <sighs> it, like, makes me physically ill. Whoa. And it's one that he presents in his TED Talks. Like, that's one of the cards that he shows yeah. in his TED Talks. So whoever postmarked this in basically faked their death on 9-11 and started a new existence. You know, I have heard of people that people... Did that, because it's a possibility if you had, if you were running late that day and you were supposed to be there and you were already thinking about disappearing, what a way to do it. Which is what the, so the original investigator that Ron hired Mm -hmm. did originally think that. Maybe she disappeared and used 9-11 as a cover. Right. Now the NYPD... Does think that she's dead, but doesn't necessarily think that she's dead due to 9-11. They think yeah. that she's dead due to, you know, being involved in basically a double life that maybe have gotten her in trouble. So here's here's just the theory. And this and the only reason that I'm thinking is, um, you know, I was just telling Kara that this year of all the years since, there has been a plethora of documentaries that have come out because yeah. of the anniversary, the 20th right. anniversary. So if you go on Hulu, Netflix, literally any streaming website... Uh, there is one on Hulu uh, that is the women of 9-11. Mm. 
and it's they're all so well done but a lot of I, I've watched a lot this year I think I've watched like four or five they all at least for a little bit have some images or some information that I had never heard of before I've never seen that perspective so the perspective on the women of 9-11 one it has a woman from the Pentagon that was the first Jane Doe and it has the perspective of the last survivor that was pulled from the rubble the mm. very last one and, and everyone after her was you know not alive so um, it, it has that those bookends of, of the of the 9-11 stories and it also has some stories from you know in between or just other perspectives but one of them which is what I had not heard in any other documentaries or I had never heard of it coming up so much was that as the first plane hit um you know, and we see we see this over and over. People were just standing there, necks up, just in awe, you know, trying to figure out what is happening. Only a few people knew that it had been a plane because they saw it, you know, just by happen chance. But they were all trying to watch it. And then when the second plane hit, and you can see this because now we have footage of it too, but there was debris falling. Mm -hmm. And not just papers and ash and, you know, things but big pieces of plane and big places uh, you know big pieces of metal that were coming down and one of the women in this documentary and you can see the piece falling in the documentary it's a big sheet piece of metal mm -hmm. that comes down blazing hot but it's so sharp that it slices off it's going to sound childish. It's it slices off her butt. Oh. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, but it's so hot that it like cauterizes it. Yeah. And that's like the only reason that she, she survived. survived. But this was like 2 blocks away. Oh my god. That like just made me like physically <sighs> So, but there's and then you know there's other instances and there's people retelling these stories that um, like there's this man that took a woman into his business again a block down the street because she was completely burned like her face was burned from debris falling so these weren't people that were in the building yeah they were bystanders they were two three blocks away and they were getting hit with burning debris yeah or just sharp debris in general but you know just in or just were getting burned, people were getting burned that had nothing to do with it, people were still walking to work, or just in the vicinity. So, the idea that she lived close, mm -hmm. and had this medical background and training, and I think regardless of a substance abuse problem, or anything that might have been going on in her life, if you have that natural instinct of being a helper, and being in the medical profession, if you see anything that you think you can help with, she mm -hmm. probably would have stepped out and tried to go and help. Yeah, I think um, I think it's foolish to say like some bad choices somehow changed her character. Right. And her character was somebody that she had a medical training. Right. She was wanted to help people, mm -hmm. and so I think it's ridiculous to be like. 
<laughs> she struggled with alcohol. There's no way she was going to help people. Right. She probably was... Let's say, you know, yeah. even if, let's say she had gone out and drank the night before and she was hungover and stumbling home for all I care, if you if you have that training, if you have that, like, innate reaction to someone that's in help, you're, you're going to want to help mm-hmm. someone. And, you know, the, another story that's in the documentary, it talks about this uh, forensic pathologist that she hears the crash she hears all the commotion so she's walking down the street going towards it Mm -hmm. to try and help her credentials help her get her past the yellow tapes um so that's also another possibility if she had anything to identify her as a medical student on her yeah then she probably would have been able to get across the yellow tapes because all hands are on deck right yeah so but during which i don't even think they were checking for anything like probably not they were probably like you have training, you have training, get in in here. In you go, whatever it is. Your pharmacist, get in there, you know, whatever. But the blast of the tower coming down pushed this uh, forensic anthropologist into a wall so hard, and you can see the pictures of her face afterwards. She is completely, like, black-eyed, you know, hit nose, hit forehead. And she was crushed up against the wall just from the blast so nothing mm-hmm. actually physically hit her other than the blast itself mm-hmm. so there was casualties beyond the epicenter of you know where the planes and where Outside the towers the were towers, yeah so the possibility that sneha was a victim of something outside mm-hmm. is very very probable but that also makes me think if they could have chalked it up to something like that so easily, then they wouldn't have gone that deep into this other theory of maybe she did just want to escape and live another life. Right. Well, and does the investigator was the one that was like, maybe she wanted to escape and live the another life, but then found nothing to support that. The detectives, the NYPD detectives or Miller saying like, she had a habit of going and meeting strangers and going home with them. So there's a likelihood that maybe she went home with the wrong person. And was attacked going home yeah. to somebody's house that she had no idea who they were, you know. Things and then like that the next happen. morning. 9-11 happens and they're like, perfect. Perfect opportunity. Yeah. To. City's too busy to worry about everything, you know, that person that's sneaking yeah. by with a suitcase. Oh, poor families. But yeah, I, I could see it both ways. I hope that necklace winds up somewhere too. I did see uh, footage that I had never seen before which was we've I mean I'm sure we've all seen this the the images of the bucket passing down like you know there's a line of first responders mm-hmm. passing down buckets with rubble I didn't know that those buckets of rubble were being put on conveyor belts and it was passing through the forensic pathologist oh I didn't really trying to find anything human remains yeah and so the the lady in the docu was one of the anthropologists looking for it. And like you said, it was like very minute pieces. Yeah. This one, I look oh at the footage God. now, I'm so overwhelmed by like, where do you even begin? You know, I just, I just realized this because I heard it in one of the docus that the rubble itself of the, you know, what we see the images mm-hmm. of people standing on top of was four stories high. Yeah. So, like, where That's do you even That's unimaginable. Begin? I saw um, Love Pup Foundation. It's a dog rescue posted the other day for 9-11 that mm-hmm. 300 dogs 
were brought in from across America to do search and rescue and therapy. And they said the dogs have severe PTSD from their search and rescue. You know, some of the firefighters had to hide themselves in the rubble every couple of hours. So the pups would think that they were actually helping. Oh my gosh. That makes me want to cry. I know. But you think like a dog like that, that is trained to, they would go in and they would smell everything. And they would obviously smell people in there that you can't get out. All they could smell is dead bodies that you can't get out. Like that would... Yeah, that would give you a really overwhelming sense of failure. Yeah. But that just makes you want to cry that they, like, would intentionally hide so the dogs could find something. Something every once in a while so the dogs would want to keep working and and keep their, you know, their senses up. and Keep their spirits high. Oh, we don't deserve dogs. Oh, man. Dogs are too good for us. Yeah, they are. (laughs) I never heard the story of her. Though. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting story. I think it's just like the bizarrest of circumstances. And there's part of me that like, did she call? Did she call him at four a.m. to tell her tell her husband where she was? Did she actually make a phone call out of the apartment that morning? And right. obviously, like, either the phone call from the apartment is true, or she really was on the security camera footage, but it's not they obviously... They both can't be they true. They both can't be true, because the woman right. that was on the security footage came in and walked out. Mm-hmm. And obviously, they were close enough to where the windows blasted their dust in their apartment. Mm-hmm. So... But I really, like, for as she was painted as, like, making questionable decisions and her life was unraveling, I really hope she did go out a hero. I bet she did. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. I like to assume. I can't think that someone that has that, that... I mean, if you go into the medical field... I think that in when you're faced with adversity to that extent, it brings out the best in people. But that shit sobers you up real quick. Yeah. Even if you are hungover. You're like, I'm going in. Yeah. I mean... Hell, I would have been like, I know CPR. Like, use right. me. That's all I got, but <laughs> use me. I'm here. <laughs> Oh man, that's a crazy, 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 crazy. It's, I did not, I never heard that. So, I mean, I'd heard of people like using it to disappear, but yeah. that's nuts. Good story. Thanks. Thank you. I think with that heavy of a story, we're going to just go ahead and end it here. Yeah. Leave us a review and, you know, follow us on socials. I'll post the CCT footage over on our TikTok. Oh, yeah. Want to see that? That's Stranger Danger Podcast over on TikTok. So you can. Follow us over on there. All right. Cool. Thank you for that story. That was, uh, like you said, heavy, but it's, you know, someone that could potentially, that potentially probably was a victim of 9-11 as well, and probably her story had not been heard as much, so. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye.